I'm your host, Carrie Aretta, Akashic Records reader, psychic sleuth, and spiritual guide. And this is The Infinite Dance, the Akashic podcast. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day to all of those that are in the United States. And for those of you that aren't, I know there's a lot of listeners outside of the United States. Yay. Thank you. Um, This day is a day to celebrate those that land that we live on, basically. When I was growing up, so, you know, I'm 50 this year. (laughs) When I was growing up, it was called Columbus Day, and a lot of people do still refer to it as that. But you know I'm all about decolonization, and how are we going to begin to do that? Well, one way is to say, no, Columbus did not discover America. It was already discovered by the people living here. So we have come to a large group calling it Indigenous Peoples Day, honoring those that are from here, have taken care of the land, have kept it sacred, and all these traditions, these beautiful traditions passed down through generations, taking care of Mother Earth in all of her capacities. And so this episode is going to be an homage to the area I live in. So I'm in the Reno Tahoe area. So I am in the western part of Nevada, the state of Nevada, very close to the California border. So I'm going to talk about actually what these areas were called before um, the European invasion. And it's, this is also a way, so I'm sharing this with you and I'll share with you the website that I'm reading this from that to know and to take part. Cause a lot of people are like, what do I start? How do we start with the decolonization? Start by learning, start by knowing more, the more knowledge, you know, the better. So in the area I'm in, <clears throat> the people that inhabited this area prior to the European invasion were the Numa or Numu, and you may have heard Paiute um, familiar, familiarly, the Washeshu, Washo, and we currently, the county I'm in is called Washo, but of course, Washeshu, the Nui, and I hope I'm pronouncing these correct. If I am not, I would love somebody uh, to chime in and uh, let me know. And they're that the Nui are commonly known as Shoshone and the Nuluvi, the Southern Paiute. In each of these groups language, these names meant the people. Within these groups were bands of Indians who were often referred to with words that reflected where they lived or what they ate. For example, the Agai Taikata referred to the trout eaters near the Walker River, or the Toy Taikata referred to the tool eaters near the Stillwater Marshes. Today, the people continue to recognize their special place on Earth and all the life cycles. Traditionally, the people lived a well planned, harmonious life, which were predicated on their immediate surroundings and nature. 
Time could not be wasted. Knowing what the land would offer was a matter of survival. Thus, the people's migration patterns were strategic and well thought out. The people followed the food, and over thousands of years, each band evolved as an efficient social and economic unit that could comfortably inhabit the land on which the people had been placed since time immemorial. I'm getting super goosebumps just reading this. Uh, living in cycles with the seasons, the Numu occupied the strip known as Western Nevada, Eastern Nevada, Eastern Oregon, and Southern Idaho. The Washeshu gathered annually at Lake Tahoe and dispersed for several hundred miles throughout the remainder of the year. The Nui were found in what is today called Eastern Nevada, Utah, and Southern California. The Nuwuvi inhabited the Colorado River Basin, where they har harvested corn, squash, wheat, and beans. To each group, the animals of the Great Basin gave insight to creation and wise guidance on how to live. Though each group spoke a different language, Washo, a Hokoan derivative, the other dialects of the Uro Aztecan origin, they understood and respected the lifestyles of the other immediate groups and other tribes with whom they came in contact. In fact, much trade and commerce occurred among the original inhabitants of the entire continent. Conflicts occurred only when economic necessities forced a group to raid or confiscate the resources of another group. Though the people considered that they have been here since time began, archaeological evidence places the earliest residents of Nevada as living here about 10,000 years ago. In 1994, the Nevada State Museum carbon dated remains which were unearthed in 1940 near Fallon, Nevada. According to modern science, the burial remains of spirit caveman prove that he lived in the area over 9,400 years ago. That's a long time. Oh my goodness. Because the Great Basin was one of the last major frontiers to be explored and settled by European Americans, the people sustained their way of life and ethnic identity much, much longer than most tribes in other parts of the country. In fact, at first contact in what would become Nevada, hundreds of other tribes were enduring the major, the fourth major shift in U.S. government policy toward American Indians from 1492 to 1828, or during the colonial period, Indians were dealt as sovereign nations. Many treaties and agreements were negotiated with France and England, and these countries recognized that the Indians had their own form of government, their own leaders, and their own homelands. Around 1830, the Spanish Trail opened in Southern Nevada and explorers and trappers made their way into the arid landscape. In the beginning, many tribal groups were curious about these newcomers and the people attempted to establish relationships with them. Yet as time went on, it was difficult to maintain a friendly association as the people found it difficult to adapt to the disruption in their lives caused by these newcomers. Although there is little written about Spaniards being in Washoe territory, there are some stories by the Washoe that suggest, suggest that such an occurrence happened. The first written records of non-Indians in Washoe lands took place in 1826. The Shoshone and Northern Paiute also encountered non-Indians about this time. 
Unfortunately, the explorers and the settlers did not understand the lifestyle of the people. The non-Indians thought that the people wandered aimlessly from place to place, but these assumptions were completely wrong. As a matter of survival, the tribes followed seasonal migratory patterns for hunting and gathering food and other materials needed for life in the Great Basin. While settlers saw the desert as rigid and desolated land, the people enjoyed the land's abundant resources. Sorry, this is emotional. And it needs to be because when we have these kinds of emotions that are knowing a group of people were treated wrongly, terribly, and tortured because they literally went with the flow of Mother Earth, of nature, is just, it's so soul, it hurts down to the core of my soul. I could, anyways, that's why we're doing this. And that's why I'm doing this um, episode. And I keep continuing to talk about decolonization and ways that um, we can all start to change the narrative of, of what has happened. And back to this store, the story of the area. However, everything drastically changed in 1848 with the discovery of gold in California. Major changes were in store for the people, and these changes still impact the way the people live today. From 1778 to 1871, or during the treaty period, the U.S. government developed 370 treaties in an attempt to legally negotiate with Indian tribes. During this era of nearly 100 years, these treaties often benefited those who were moving westward and not the tribes. The only treaty to impact Great Basin Indians was the treaty with the Western Shoshone. The Agreement of Peace and Friendship was ratified in 1866. By the middle of the 1800s, so many settlers inhabited the people's land that Indians struggled to find food. Within five years, close to 250,000 people made their way across Nevada, hunting and fishing and infringing on the people's traditional homelands. This encroachment extremely limited and in some areas exhausted the food supply. Even the introduction of the horse to the Great Basin served as competition for food for the Indians. Cultural clashes soon developed too. There was a significant difference in perspective regarding land occupation versus land ownership. The settlers believed in land own ownership, meaning that once they chose an area in which to live, they tended to stay in that one location. Meanwhile, the people utilized the land seasonally and only occupied the area for a short term. As the people struggled to adapt, the federal government shifted its policy towards Indians again. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 halted any future treaties with tribes, and it gave Congress the authority to isolate the people in order to allow economic growth throughout the United States. This was done through the creation of reservations. One of the main goals of reservations was to move the people to one central location and to provide them with a piece of land to cultivate. Ultimately, the federal government believed that separating the people from the rest of its citizens would solve land disputes. 
The development and activation of reservations was a campaign promise of U.S. President Andrew Jackson, and most of the land set aside was undesirable lands that the settlers did not want anyway. Some tribes, some tribes and bands fought the process of removal and eventually assimilation, but in doing so, the tribes were perceived as hostile and uncivilized. It was during the reservation period that the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, allowed the Nevada Territory to join the Union. Without including the Great Basin Americans in the count, Nevada's population did not meet the federal requirements for becoming a state. However, on October 31, 1864, President Lincoln proclaimed Nevada as the 36th state. Soon thereafter, <clears throat> the Moapa River Paiute Reservation and then the Walker River Paiute Indian Reservation were each established by executive order in 1873. Back in 1859, the Department of Interior had recommended that land be set aside for Indian use north of the Truckee River, including Pyramid Lake, through an executive order, though an executive order was issued in 1874 to establish the Pyramid Lake Reservation. The legal year of establishment is 1859. In 1871, the Indian Appropriations Act gave the U.S. Congress exclusive right and power to regulate trade and affairs with the Indian tribes and the U.S. Supreme Court legally designated Indians as domestic dependent nations and wards of the federal government. This jarring shift in policy towards Indians meant more federal control over the people. I know this history so much, and it just, it, it so hard to, to fathom that it happened and is still happening and still being in, enforced. From 1887 to 1934, the U.S. federal government began its allotment and assimilation plan for dealing with the Indians. These policies closely resemble the European model of land ownership and with an ultimate goal of pushing the people to become part of white society. In doing so, not only did the government take additional land from tribes, but it attempted to erase reservation boundaries and force Indians into society at large. The Dawes Act divided tribal land into individual parcels and halted communal land use, which paralleled traditional Native lifestyles. The vast majority of Indian lands, Indians' lands taken through the Dawes Act were not just used for new settlements, but for railroad, railroads, mining, and forestry industries. In addition, the allotment and assimilation period became the Indians to be educated in boarding schools operated by the government. Indian children were often taken from their families and made to attending these military-like institutions hundreds of miles away from their families. As a result of the allotment system nationwide, Indian territory was reduced from 138 million acres to only 48 million acres, along with the devastating loss of their land. The people's fundamental structure for tribal life was destroyed, too. Another major shift in federal policy happened after a U.S. government commissioned the study evaluated the conditions of Indian communities. In stunning details, the Merriam Report outlined the ineffectiveness 
ineffectiveness of the Dawes Act, as it found that the overwhelming majority of Indian people were extremely poor, in bad health, living in primitive dwellings, and without adequate employment. The Merriam Report blamed the hardships that the Indians face and the encroachment of white civilization on the encroachment of white civilization. The report stated that the Indian social system did not and would not work with the conditions forced onto them. These findings were the basis for the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. The IRA encouraged tribes to organize their own governments and incorporate their trust their trust land. This is how the Reno Sparks Indian Colony was established. And this is uh, the website I'm reading all of this from. And by the way, I just want to back up uh, about the boarding schools that the children were um, shipped off to, to basically have them become white. They would not be able to talk in their native tongue. They would not be around their family, so they wouldn't have that support. And on top of that, they were abused physically, sexually, and emotionally. And it is horrifying. There are quite a few um, podcasts out there that do have, um, let me get the one that I was listening to. It's a hard listen. So just fair warning. But again, the more we know about what went on and what has, you know, what is being enforced still, the better everybody will be. And if I can't find it, I am going to link it in the show notes. Um, it's, I can't believe I can't find it right now. Um, so I will find that podcast and link it in the show notes because I think it would be very beneficial to listen to. At the turn of the century, and so back to this, back to the story. Um, at the turn of the century, many Numa and Washoe lived in the Reno Sparks area, not only because this was their uh, the Aboriginal lands of for the people, but more and more Indians moved to the area to find jobs. <laughs> The transition to colonies actually represented another adaptive strategy for the Indians. Often the people not giving on a res- not living on a reservation were considered scattered or homeless. These Indians tried to maintain some of their old ways by building traditional homes, sometimes with modern materials and camps in urban areas, often near the Truckee River. In 1917, the federal government purchased 20 acres for $6,000 for non-Indian for non-reservation Indians of Nevada and for homeless Indians. This land is the core of the present day colony. Most of the land was not cultivatable. However, the Indian Bureau dug irrigation ditches to provide some drinking water, but most of the Indians collected drinking water from the spring about a quarter of a mile away. Initially, the Numa, the Numa lived on the north side of the colony, while the Washoe lived on the south side of the colony. The Reno Sparks Indian Colony and the all colonies received some governmental services and were most often considered by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to be under their jurisdiction. For example, the purchase of additional land in 1926 was part of the effort to improve the water supply for the colony. Plus, from 1920 to 1930, 
a nurse and a police officer paid from federal government funds were stationed at the colony. Further, in 1938, the United States Supreme Court ruled that there was no distinction between a colony and a reservation, which meant that the superintendents of the colony fell to the federal government. Ugh. To that end, an additional 8.3 acres was added to the colony in 1926, purchased for about 4,000 U.S. dollars. This strip of land allowed for a day school. For many years, residents of the colony sent their children to this local government-operated school instead of a boarding school about 40 miles away. However, the colony school was closed in the early 1940s because the building was in such disrepair. The Indian children's only option was to attend public school, but discrimination was rampant. Mercifully, in 1945, Grace Warner, the principal of Orvis Ring School, invited the Indian student to her to attend her school. This arrangement, which included housing or busing the colony students to Orvis Ring, lasted until 1975 when the public school system required the Indian students to attend the school closest to in proxim, closest in proximity to the colony. As permissible under the IRA, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony established its first formal council in 1934. On February 9th, 1934, the elected council included three Paiutes, Cleveland Cipher, Thomas Ochio, Ochio, and George Hooten, and three Washos, Willie Tondi, Jack Mahoney, and George McGinnis. Harry Sampson was selected chairman of the council. In a letter to Nevada Senator Kay Pittman, The new council supported the IRA, writing that the bill would be of lasting benefit to the progress of all Indians in the United States. Additionally, new colony leadership with input from Acting Bureau of Indian Affairs Superintendent John H. Holst conducted a vote in which the IRA was overwhelmingly supported by the colony residents. Furthermore, five men, Sampson, Cypher, Mahoney, Tondi, and George Hunter worked on a constitution for the colony. Additional assistance crafting the constitution came from George Lavada, a northern Shoshone from the Fort Hall Reservation who worked as a federal government field agent. The colony's constitution was adopted on December 16, 1935, and was approved by a vote of 51 to 1. In 1936, the colony decided or tried to adopt a charter, but the BIA's field superintendent, Alita Bowler, delayed submitting the paperwork to the federal government. Bowler did not believe all the signatures were authentic, as many colony members would could not write. Had someone else sign his or her name, Bowler returned the peti petition with instructions to have person who could not write make a cross or thumbprint but that action had to be witnessed by two other persons. Jeez. I mean, it's just incredible. Adding to the confusion, most often charters enabled tribes to get credit, which would assist the Indians with economic development. Ballard did not think the RSIC could get credit because it had no agricultural resources. However, the colony's charter, which was approved on 19. On January 7, 1939, included plans for the tribe to establish a cooperating laundry, a store, a meat market, a gas station, arrangements for raising, the raising of poultry, 
and a harness repair shop for individual Indian members who wanted to do business for themselves. Also under Sampson's leadership, the RSIC tried to take advantage of a provision in the IRA to purchase the land for the colony. With input from E.M. Johnstone, a BIA land field agent, Lavada, and Bowler, a proposal for the purchase of 1,080 acres between Highway 40 and the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks and the Truckee Canyon were submitted to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs on January 25, 1937. Unfortunately, this land purchase never came to fruition as the federal government's field agent active agent and superintendent could not agree on how to proceed. While the RSIC continued to build its sovereignty and explore economic opportunities for its members, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower changed the federal, federal government's policy toward American Indians and began the termination era. To deal with the Indians nationwide, Eisenhower sought elimination of the U.S. government's trust responsibility to the tribes. This meant that scores of tribes lost their federal benefits and support services along with tribal jurisdiction over their lands. All told, the termination era, which, the termination era, which lasted from 1945 to 1968, eliminated 109 tribal governments and reservations. Fortunately, no tribes in Nevada were terminated. Finally, in 1970, U.S. President Richard Nixon developed the latest national policy towards Indians, tribal self-determination. Self-determination gave autonomy to tribes by allowing the, tri the Indians to control their own affairs and be independent of federal oversight without being cut off from the federal support. Gosh, can you imagine this? I mean, this is just so appalling. Today, the RSIC, so the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, expanded its original land base to 15,292 acres with 1,157 tribal members. The colony employs over 300 employees and more than half are the, are the people. The tribe also maintains a tribal court system, a police force, and a health clinic, and it provides full government services to its membership. The tribe's other governmental departments include administration, education, public works, human services, utility district, planning, profession, prevention, coalition, enrollment, human resources, economic development, recreation, financing, housing, and the chairman's office. They also, so if you're in the Reno Tahoe area, you can um, volunteer with this organization. And they have information about um, various events that are going on. I will link that in the, in the show notes. I will also link um, that podcast. So if you're interested in hearing about the boarding schools, um, I will link that podcast because it was, again, really, um, really powerful. And please get to know the area you're in. It's going to take every single one of us to aid in decolonizing and being right in right relationship with all those around us and all those that the land is their own. Um, if you would like a private reading, please go to ancientbodyworks.co and um, I appreciate you listening today. Happy indigenous people's day. Again, it's October 10th, 2022. Um, 
It's also my boyfriend's birthday. Happy birthday, Abdallah. 1010. What a good date, right? Anyways, keep peeling back the layers of your beautiful being. Knowing all these different parts are going to be so beneficial, not only to you, but also to the collective. And continue to ask yourselves and each other, may I have this dance?